everyone. This is our fourth week of having online church. So this is obviously a new thing for all of us, but uh, what a privilege it is for us to still be able to get together, even if it is virtually, worship God and hear his word. I've been really encouraged by the faith and creativity that I see in our church community. I hear so many stories of how you're reaching out to one another, supporting one another, understanding how to be the, uh, the tangible presence of God in the, uh, in the places that you find yourself. Uh, it's also been fun to listen to what's going on in other churches. There's one Every Nation Church, and I think another church is doing it, at least one other as well, but there's an Every Nation Church in Florida that has decided to do a drive-in church. And so what they do on a Sunday is everyone drives with their car into a parking lot. The pastor is up on a scissor lift and they can all hear him through their, their FM radios. And he gave, a, uh, he gave an altar call for people to respond to Jesus in the way that you would respond is you would, uh, you would flick your lights you know, on and off. And that's how people knew that you were responding. Very creative, very innovative. Uh, somebody was making the joke that uh, if it was a message on repentance, they would either click their left or right hand signal, depending on which direction they wanted to go in. But it's, uh, it's just fascinating to see how people are responding during this time, still wanting to advance the kingdom of God and see his gospel come into people's lives. Well, this is Palm Sunday. And uh, this is a big moment in the church calendar. But what I'd like to be able to do is use this Sunday to link what we've been talking about in the previous Sundays and uh, use it kind of as a bridge between that and our anticipation of Easter next weekend. So by way of introduction, there's something that we deeply value in our church because it's what's deeply valued in the Bible, and that is that God is love. 1 John 4, 9 says that there is no other motivation that drives God's decisions. He's not a little bit angry and a little bit loving or a little bit wrathful or everything that God does is always out of love. There's not another motivation that inspires him. The way that we've broken down what love is, again, is what God's word teaches in, in Zechariah 7, 9, is that love is comprised of two primary qualities, mercy and justice. Mercy is God's love toward victims, uh, sorry, is God's love toward criminals, and justice is God's love toward victims. When you've been wronged, you look for justice. When you're the one who has done wrong, you look for mercy. And so it's very important to understand that love has both of these qualities to it. It's, uh, it's simplistic, but easy to reduce love only to mercy. But if that was all that was motivating God, then people would take advantage of that. And what's called cheap grace would be rampant. That people would go, oh great, I can just do whatever I want and God's gonna forgive me. But no, uh, God's love is much more profound than that in that it embraces both mercy and justice. And this is what we trust in. This is what our relationship with God is founded upon the fact that he is love through and through. As we looked last week regarding God's justice or regarding his judgments, we can resent his judgments, can't we? We can question his motives, question whether he's in charge or not, 
And it comes to the point where we can actually say, I wonder if, if he's the sinner, not I'm the sinner, but that somehow the way that he executes judgment on earth and in my life personally is somehow sinful. Well, this is impossible because God can't sin because he's only loving. But there's something that, uh, that judgment can trigger in our hearts that can make us doubt the motives of God and actually flip it where he's the one that's wrong and we're the one that's right. I mean, it's ridiculous, but this is what our, our pride uh, can do inside of us is make us uh, see ourselves in a positive light and then in order to justify that we make God out to be the sinner. It's easy to, I think to understand how we can resent God's judgments and be insulted by that. That makes sense. But the question that we want to ask today is what about his mercy? Can we actually resent his mercy as much as we resent his judgment. What we'd like to do then is look at how people responded to Jesus on Palm Sunday. When he made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, there was two primary responses, two groups of people that responded to Jesus in opposite ways. And this can help us understand uh, how we can have a positive and negative attitude toward mercy. The first group is described in Matthew 21, verse 9. This is what it says. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This Hosanna is just, a, is just a, uh, an expression of, of joy and exaltation and an anticipation of his ability to save. And they are super excited that Jesus would come as the Messiah into Jerusalem and they anticipated him establishing himself as king over Israel. What's interesting is who is in this crowd that is so excited about Jesus coming to establish himself as Lord and then in just a few days, Savior, where he's going to die for their sins. Now, uh, this, these are the people who are in the crowd. This is who Matthew describes. Specifically, he mentions the blind, the lame, children, tax collectors, and prostitutes. These are the people who are thrilled to have Jesus come as Lord and Savior into their hearts and into their city and nation. Uh, they believed, Mark 8, sorry, Mark 10, 45, Jesus did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. They believe that the motive of Jesus was love through and through and that he was a merciful, kind king who came to bring good news into their lives. And they knew it because they needed it, whether they were uh, somehow uh, physically distressed or whether they were, were morally corrupt. They knew that they needed a better leader in their life and someone to save them from their sin, someone from their brokenness. So that's group number one. Group number two is described in verse 15. When the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things Jesus did and the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Now, this is just incredible. They watched him, it says, do wonderful things, not uh, questionable things or immoral things. They watched him do wonderful things and their response 
to the beauty of Jesus Christ was indignation. This is just incredible. Uh, Imagine uh, resenting good and wonderful things. (laughs) You look at somebody doing a great thing and you go, I hate that. Well, this is what they did. And in the end, they actually killed mercy. A God who came to, uh, to love them, to sacrifice for them, to set them free from slavery, they killed mercy. They killed Jesus Christ. So, why can justice and mercy be equally insulting? We looked last week how, how, um, how justice and judgment can be insulting. This week, we're looking at how mercy can be insulting. How can both of them be, uh, 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 be a negative experience in our hearts? Well, for at least two reasons. First is that they both imply guilt. If judgment comes against us, uh, in the way that we understood what Scripture teaches last week, is that the implication is you're deserving of it. That the judgments of God are always right, always true, and always just. And so that means that when he brings a negative consequence against us, it's because we sinned and we deserve the punishment. That's a little bit easier to understand. But it's also true regarding mercy. You see, the only people who receive mercy are those who understand that they're guilty. And so uh, to receive the love and forgiveness of God means to admit something of our guilt. And if we're insulted by that, then we'll actually never receive mercy, never experience forgiveness. We think that that mercy is just always good news. No, it's actually only good news to those who are deeply aware of their own sinfulness and need for forgiveness. The second thing that both of these, uh, justice and mercy, do is that they both imply a loss of control. What this uh, virus is doing in uh, in people's hearts and in nations is it's humbling us. It's revealing that we are not in control. And again, as we said last week, uh, this has always been true. It's not just been true for the past number of months. It's been true forever that God has always been in control. He is always sovereign Lord. But what judgment does is it brings that kind of vague concept of his sovereignty and it makes, it puts an exclamation mark behind it. And it makes it very clear and very visible that God is in control of the nations and in control of our lives. And then in the appropriate response to that is the fear of the Lord, to acknowledge his sovereignty and to bow our knee. So so justice and judgment can uh, can, uh, insult our pride when we don't want to bow our knee. But the same is true with mercy, that mercy is putting ourselves in debt to someone else. It's saying, I need you to reinstate me. I need you to do something that I can't do for myself. You know, this idea of, of, of forgiving ourselves is a ridiculous idea when we look at what the Bible teaches. There's no mention of that in God's word. And yet people all the time talking about their learning to forgive themselves. That's just, a, it's a silly idea. 
because it would mean that they would have to die for their own sins. Uh, the, the reality of what the Bible teaches is that Jesus dies for our sins. And so what that does is it puts us in debt to him. It makes us his servant. And this can be as insulting as the judgment idea is, is that do I really want to need somebody in that kind of way? Ultimately, what both justice and mercy require, what they both demand is repentance, a change of heart, a humility, a churning from self-sufficiency and I'm my own God and I can do whatever I want and, and, uh, and I'm, I'm kind of a, above God's law to be able to say, no, when he punishes me, it's righteous. And when he gives me mercy, I need it. This is what repentance is. The church, however, can think that mercy is easier for people to receive, so we start there. What's the primary way that we hear a presentation of the gospel? Jesus loved you. He loves you just the way that you are. Now, I don't know about you, but I love starting with that. Like, why would I ever want to say anything negative? The idea is, is that it's already going to be hard enough for them to repent in just a minute when I get to that part. So I'm going to start off, which is really good news, in that Jesus loves you just the way you are. He accepts you. He's not a judgmental God. And we think that we're actually helping people move toward repentance and faith by only emphasizing the mercy side of God's love. But judgment actually softens our hearts to receive mercy. It is actually impossible to receive mercy until you first receive judgment. Because judgment is the rude awakening of who we really are and of how we stand before God. And when that grips our hearts, then we cry out for the mercy of God. But if we start with mercy, it becomes a kind of a pathetic, wimpy uh, sympathy and pity. It has nothing to do with the strength of Jesus Christ dying for the sins of humanity. During this time of, uh, of quarantine, we've been watching one of the Bible series uh, on TV. Really, really great. A few nights ago, we watched the crucifixion of Christ. I mean, it is just so, uh, I don't know of another word aside from disturbing. It's just so hard to watch an innocent man being tortured and crucified for my sin and yours. It, it, it feels unjust, but that's what mercy is, isn't it? It's, it's, it's justice at Christ's expense. Unless we come to grips with uh, the reality that we put Christ on the cross, that it is our sin that put him there, we will never appreciate or long for the mercy of God. Ironically then, a message without judgment is also a message without mercy. As I've been talking with many of you over this past week, I've heard lots of wrestling in our hearts about this idea of God being a judge. 
And is he really a righteous judge? And my hunch is we struggle to describe judgment to other people because we struggle to believe it ourselves. And we prefer a view of love that is, is soft and kind and merciful. But when it comes to judgment, I think we wrestle with it. And so it makes it very hard for us to communicate that to others and to believe that that actually falls under the banner of good news. Namely, that we're not Lord and that we're not Savior. And we need to admit that in order for the rest of the good news to make any sense at all. We talked about the Passover last week, and, it, and it's worth talking about again today, that the only people who did not receive mercy uh, in Egypt was those who did not put the blood on the doorposts. Who were those people? Is it easy to say, oh, those were just the Egyptians, and it was the Hebrews who did that? The Egyptians could have easily put blood on their doorposts and also be, had mercy extended to them. This wasn't a, a racial division. It was a division between the proud and the humble, between those who were aware that they were under God's judgment and needed forgiveness and those who weren't. All, all of us, Hebrews, um, Egyptians, Canadians, everybody is under the judgment of God. We are all deserving of sin, of, of, of death, but it's only those who cry out for the mercy of God and receive his shed blood that we find forgiveness. So the only people that mercy does not come to are the proud and those who resist coming under the judgment of God. So the question that we want to end with then is, how are our hearts softened to receive this mercy? Well, we're already talking about it a bit, but I want to make it clear that there's two, at least two things that we need to do in order to receive the mercy of God and experience the freedom and joy and life that it brings. Number one is that we must admit that we deserve God's judgment. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and all fall short of God's glorious standard. We all stand condemned. And we've been wrestling with this, but we have to let that strike our hearts. We have to let it be true if we're ever to experience the kindness of God. But we can't stop there because here's the problem. In, uh, in 2 Corinthians 7, it describes something called a worldly sorrow. And what this worldly sorrow is, is it, is it ends with just point one. It says, yeah, I'm a horrible person. I'm wicked and evil. I deserve the judgment of God. And, and if we just stay there, all that we experience is just condemnation. And the, the guilt and the shame actually, it says, leads us to death, not to seeking life. And so it's not enough to simply sit in God's judgment. That would be incomplete. What we need to do is move to the second point, and this is what we want to focus on. And it's, it's described in Matthew chapter 5, verse 7. This is what it says. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. What is the condition to receive the mercy of God? Well, number one was to experience this idea of, of guilt over sin. But number two is actually to be merciful to other people. This is very, very interesting. Is that in order to receive God's love, we need to give God's love or give God's mercy to other people. 
Now, why would this be true? Why does this need to be a, a precondition? This is how it said in, in uh, Matthew chapter 6, verse 15. If you do not forgive others their sins, your father will not forgive your sins. Only as you give away mercy will you receive mercy. Uh, why is this? Well, I think about, uh, I think about my kids and I think about them as they, were, as they were growing up. Most of them are older now. But I, I think as they, as they grew up, they just really didn't have any understanding of, of what money was or, or what something would cost. And so, uh, I mean, it was really great when they were little kids. You could get them a, a $2 toy, and that was ex as exciting as a $50 toy because it, it was just fun. Um, but, but what's interesting is as they, uh, you know, they would maybe watch TV and, and see what kind of things that they could buy, and, and they would start to ask us for things. And they would say, you know, I want this, uh, uh, I don't know what it is. I want some game console or something. And we go, do you know how much that costs? No, that costs $300. And they, they just have a blank look on their face. Like, well, whatever, can I have it or not? Like, there's just no concept of what that costs. It's just what they want. It wasn't until they began to work themselves and realize how long it takes to actually make $300, that then they became incredibly grateful for those kinds of gifts when they would receive them. They go, wow, I didn't realize how amazing this is, but now that I've, now that I've had to actually work and I understand the value of money and, the, and how much it costs to, and the sacrifice involved, my gratitude is entirely different. Well, this is the same with mercy. As we give away mercy, we understand God's heart of love. We understand what it cost him. And that gratitude wells up in us be able, being able to receive the mercy because now we, we hold it in a much higher regard. And we're grateful for it and we receive it in our hearts as, as life. And it saves us. It's tremendously important that we understand that mercy will not penetrate our hearts unless we embrace a lifestyle of mercy. And as we practice mercy, then we become grateful for it. And God also knows that we won't squander it with a selfish attitude. You see, if all that we did was just go, hey, thanks a lot for forgiving my sins, uh, we've actually missed the whole point of what Jesus is trying to do. His goal, believe it or not, is not to forgive our sins. His goal is to have a love relationship with us. And the way that that happens, of course, is through the forgiveness of sins, but that's not the goal, that's the means. And so if we, are, if, if we don't understand that, if we don't practice a lifestyle of wanting to have love and relationship with God and others, then, uh, then we'll just receive mercy in selfishness. And so his, his sacrifice will have been squandered on selfish hearts. And this becomes blasphemous to God, and it becomes a curse to us. And so the only way for God to set us free from a self-centered orientation toward mercy is to say, practice it. And as you practice it, 
you'll be able to receive it and walk in it in the way that I intended, in a way that draws you toward me, and that we can then walk in an intimate relationship with one another, be in fellowship. So in conclusion, how do we prepare for Easter? As we consider Palm Sunday, and we consider what we're going to be uh, celebrating next week, we practice two things. We practice repentance, and we practice mercy. We practice repentance. We practice saying, I deserve to be under judgment, and God is not the sinner. I am. And I am admitting that his judgments are always true, not in some abstract way, but about me, about my people, about my nation, that when he brings a judgment, he is right and just. And to practice mercy. We don't stay there. We say, but oh God, I long to be washed in your love. I long to have a, have a, have an intimate relationship with you and with the people around you. So I'm going to practice mercy. I'm going to practice being kind and generous to people around me, giving to them what they don't deserve, but I long to give them because I long to be connected with them and walk with them and be in fellowship and communion with them. And as we begin to practice mercy and practice repentance, then when Easter comes, we are able to receive it in the fullness in which God intended us to receive it in. So what does this look like? Well, it obviously, this mercy looks like, giving away mercy looks like generous love, that we let ourselves be inconvenienced. We let ourselves do something that costs us for the sake of love and relationship. And it looks like what we talk a lot about in our church, having courageous conversations. Uh, courageous conversations cost us something because people might reject us or mock us or, or respond in the opposite way that we would hope, where we're trying to come in closer and bring them good news, they actually get insulted and pull away. That's the risk, isn't it? Of loving people the way the gospel compels us to. But these courageous conversations are essential. Uh, and how do we do that during this time of, of isolation? during this time of, of living in this pandemic. You've heard talked about uh, midweek, and I just want to emphasize it again, because uh, we're just, I just really believe that God wants to do this uh, through our church. And that's to have these 60-second testimonies where we share our story so that they can then hear God's story uh, in communicating the gospel. I just really believe that this is going to be good news, not just for the people who hear our, our testimony on social media, I think it's going to be good news for our hearts. That as we practice being honest about who we are and how we need Jesus, and we, we go public with that, that's going to defeat the fear of man. That's going to defeat our, our insecurities, our inability to know how to grab hold of grace. And so I think it's going to be as much a blessing for us as it is for them. But ultimately, it is for them, and it's for the glory of God. And I urge you, do this not just for a therapeutic reason, maybe not even just because you love your neighbor, but do it because you love God and you want to declare his, 
his justice and his mercy to the nations. You want your relational sphere to grab hold of who God really is and to be changed by him and to, be, and to walk with him forever and saved from eternal judgment. Let your, let your uh, worship of God motivate your desire to communicate your God story to those in your relational sphere. So as we, as we think about these things, I'd like us to pray that God would put these thoughts into our hearts. Father, it's easy just to have a soft Christianity that doesn't cost us anything, that minimizes your sacrifice, that downplays the wickedness of our hearts, that is, that, that, yeah, that lets our pride stay intact. But, oh God, we want the, we want the kind of transformation that isn't just intellectual or behavioral. We want our hearts to be changed. And this requires admitting that we deserve judgment and then longing for mercy and expressing that in how we live. Oh God, would you, would you work these things in our heart that we wouldn't have a cosmetic Christianity. We would have a, a Christianity that changes our hearts and that therefore changes the hearts of those around us. Bless us with revelation. Bless us with conviction and courage. In Jesus' name, amen.